We have two readings today. Um, one of them is Acts 2, chapter 2, verses 42 to the end of chapter 2. And then the other one is 1 Peter 2, 4 to 12. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices for accept, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, "See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame." Now to you is that it? Now to you who believe, the stone will be precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, and that you may declare praises, the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We've done a few go-back-in-time exercises in our imaginations in this series. Uh, this time, I want you to imagine yourself somewhere in some present-day places. It should be easier. And it means I'll be able to use photos, not paintings, to help. And so I want you to start by imagining you are in Paris at the airport. You might have been to... I've never been to Paris, but I can imagine an airport. And it shouldn't be hard to imagine an airport because actually all airports look the same. There are certain architectural features like check-in desks, like security, like the arrival and departure boards that are basically the same everywhere. So it looks the same in London or in Brisbane. There's just more people in Europe. And it's the same with train stations. All train stations look the same. So Paris looks like London except for the Bears, uh, which looks like Sydney. And it's true too of supermarkets. So the supermarket shelves in France look the same as they do in England, look the same as they do in Australia. Uh, in a global market, you'll even find the same brands everywhere you go or not find them during a pandemic. And then there's the Swedish embassy, IKEA, which looks the same in Stockholm, in London and in Brisbane. And all these places look the same. They're all designed to look the same. They all have an architecture. And I wonder if you've ever thought about the architecture of these spaces as you move through them as people with bodies who are shaped by images and your desires and by life in space and time. 
whether you've thought about the design at the places where we go to go somewhere else, those transient places like airports and train stations, and how it's an absolute feature that they all are familiar so that you can navigate that system, or how the places we go to consume, to buy, they all look the same too. And if you haven't thought about the architecture of these spaces, well, the thing is, others have, very deliberately. What about, have you thought about the shopping centre, like Garden City? This is actually a picture of the first ever shopping centre. It was a mall, because it's in America. It's created by the architect Victor Gruen as somewhere people would go to lose themselves in the bright lights and the indoor gardens and the fountains and the mazy design that had a, a pattern that would kind of steer your feet. You would lose yourself in the shopping centre so that you might find yourself through buying things. And that exact moment that you lose yourself and start buying things you weren't planning to, that you didn't really want, that moment is called the Gruen Transfer or the Gruen Effect. It's where the TV show gets its name. It's where we reach what's called scripted disorientation, where you've lost yourself, but you're following someone else's script. This is the kind of thinking that means uh, every space we enter has been scripted, has been shaped to do something to us. Think about the layout of the supermarket. Uh, you might have noticed that when you go to the shops just to buy milk, the milk is at the back of the shop, not the front of the shop, and it's there so you have to walk through the biscuit or chocolate aisles to get to the milk. So that on your way to get the milk, you get something nice to go with it. You might get some Milo or some chocolate or a biscuit to dunk if you want to do the Tim Tam Slam. But everything is architectured to shape your behaviour, to maximise profits for the people running the space. Even where things are put on the shelves and what's at eye level is calculated to make you spend more. Now, IKEA, we had on the screen before, IKEA is built as a maze, deliberately. They are the masters of this sort of scripted disorientation. You have to walk through a showroom maze where you see all the products laid out and can imagine them in your house or imagine your house looking like their little showrooms. But then you walk downstairs through the buying maze where they put cheap things at the start and expensive things at the end and they want you to impulse buy all the things you've seen upstairs till you get to what you want and to the checkouts. This is choice architecture. It's a deliberate shaping of consumer habitats to shape our consumer habits so that we'll buy more. And the philosopher, a guy named Matthew Crawford, wrote a book called The World Beyond Your Head where he shows how spaces like this are shaped to sell us stuff by grabbing our attention, by bombarding us. And he tells two stories from the modern world that I think is worth having in our heads as we think about how we live in space and the spaces we make. He tells two stories in his book. One's from Korea which is kind of in the future for us technology-wise. In Korea, some buses come equipped with flavour radios. Are these things that pump out the smell of Dunkin' Donuts into the bus as a Dunkin' Donuts ad plays over the speaker as the bus pulls up outside Dunkin' Donuts? That is scripted disorientation or reorientation. It is sensual, it is image-based, it is appealing to our senses and it is locating us in the place that we might go to fulfil those desires. It's kind of sinister, but clever. It's one of the reasons I want to have bread makers making the bread for communion in church, but 
not for sinister reasons. We'll, we'll unpack a bit more of that in a little while. He talks too about airports. And these pictures are pictures from the site, the website that sells advertising space at the Brisbane airport where you can buy advertising space just about anywhere. Every space is covered with advertising, even the security trays. You can put an ad for your company in the security tray so every passenger interacts with it on their way through the process. Scripted disorientation. Your attention is demanded at every turn by people selling things unless in the airport, unless you pay for silence in the corporate lounge. It's the one place you go where you are not being bombarded, where your attention is not being demanded from you by noisy advertisements, whether they're on moving screens or pumped through the, sound, the air through sound waves. And he says, Crawford, the lounges are where the people who create these habitats go. The people who make money by selling us stuff know how important their attention is, so they pay for silence. They pay for the ability to pay attention, for their silence, for their attention to be free from distraction so they can come up with things like scent radios, flavour radios. Crawford reckons our attention is actually our most valuable commodity as people. He thinks it's like air and water and we should approach attention like we approach air and water in the commons as, as things that all people are entitled to and that the overtaking of public space with advertising and noise, is quite diabolical. And so he suggests we should create an attentional commons. We should see public space as common space for the common good and fight to cut out advertising noise so that we're able to pay attention and not be scripted and disoriented, not just in shops, but in public spaces, on buses, in airports. He makes a distinction in his book between nudges, which are made famous by this book called Nudge by some behavioural economics uh, economists, sorry, and jigs. Nudges, he said, operate below the surface. They frame how we approach decisions, like an IKEA map, so that we think we've come to those decisions ourselves, that we've made them as autonomous people, but we don't recognise the way things have been framed in order to set up the choice in a particular way. See, nudges can be good for us if they're pointed to things that are good for us. Public health campaigns use nudges all the time. But jigs, he says, are how we deliberately set up our environments to produce the actions we want. It's a, a word from the carpentry workshop where a carpenter, if they want to do repeat cuts of the same length, will set up their workspace to make that cut easy. And he says, it's not only carpenters who do this, chefs in kitchens do this with their kitchen layout. They set up their habitat to create the habits that they want, the habits for flourishing work in those spaces without having to think, so they just become automatic. And he says, this is actually how character works. Repeated automatic habits that shape us as the people we want to be. And so to deliberately create jigs in our lives, things that make repeated habits possible and almost necessary, that's actually a path to forming character. He says the word character in the Greek originally it meant stamp. It's something that comes when you get things stamped on you over and over again and are built into that sort of shape. And so if we want to build character, if we want to become disciples, people who are disciplined into a way of life, we might have to choose to shape our habitats in ways that produce the habits that we desire. Because ultimately, as we've seen through this series, we are our bodies. We're not just brains on a stick. We are our desires and we learn our desires through what we interact with. And we are matter in space 
which means that space actually matters. This uh, French philosopher, Marc Auge, describes, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but describes most spaces in modern cities like the ones we kind of imagined ourselves in as non-places. It's an interesting idea that I want us to kind of sit with this morning. Places, he says, have three characteristics. They're where we go to understand and perform our identity, to know who we are, to live coherently in a story. He says they're places we go to relate to others, to a community, and to be connected to history, to a shared past and a shared story. And architects of places deliberately structured them so people can act according to these characteristics. We imagined ourselves in a church or in a medieval village square a few weeks ago. Churches in medieval villages were places like this. People had thought about the architecture. They were cross-shaped buildings with a steeple reaching up to heaven and the churches would host festivals and saint days and Sunday services and services during the week and inside there'd be a pulpit where a story was preached where the Bible was read and there'd be stained glass windows and art surrounding you telling stories and you'd receive communion with your community while the graves of dead people from your church community and your village would be just outside giving you a connection beyond yourself. And to go to church, to enter that space with those people meant participating in that place, in that story with people living and dead to be drawn into that history. It wasn't just to create roots, but to grow from roots created by others. And there's something really cool that I just want to acknowledge for us City South folks about the relationship our Church of Christ family have with this space and the privilege we have that we might grow together as we share this space and as we cultivate life in it together. That's something we need to keep thinking about. Now, church spaces that are once at the centre of city life in the central business district in the public square, well, now the buildings are still there. We've got Ann Street Presbyterian Church just on this block. Ann Street Church of Christ is somewhere near that, is that right? Somewhere in the city? They're still there. They're just now surrounded by transport hubs and places of commerce and outdoor advertising because city squares have now become non-places. They've become these places of transience. So Alj says non-places are the opposite of places. They're fast-paced places where we don't belong, but we move through as transient, anonymous individuals. We don't go there to be known or to know ourselves. They're the roads and supermarkets and airports that we enter, not as individuals who have a story, but as driver or consumer or passenger. And they're places where we're bombarded with advertising, with imagery that reinforced transience, they're always about where you might go to from there or how you might change who you are through consuming. And this imagery replaces imagery that points us to the transcendent. Non-places are geared towards the transient and ours reckons, as a result, they're inherently narcissistic. They teach us that we are individuals who need our desires to be satisfied and these images are the path to satisfaction. And he says this really interesting thing. He says, non-places leave us simultaneously always and never at home. And this is the nature of life, he says, in the modern world because non-places are everywhere. 
We increasingly don't live where we're born. We don't live around familiar landmarks and people. We won't be buried in a graveyard next to our churches. We spend so much time in transient non-places that we live as pilgrims or exiles, disconnected from place and community and history. And this is novel. This is not how it has been through human history. He says, home is where we feel understood and known and can make sense of the world because we're connected, but transient people in non-places, well, they can actually feel at home in non-places because that's where things are familiar. If you're a traveller feeling disoriented in a foreign country, well, being in your car on a highway by yourself, that feels normal. Walking through the big stores and seeing the same brands on the shelves or staying in a big international hotel chain where they will speak your language and make you feel at home, that suddenly feels like a sense of belonging. Walking through these big stores, the Ikeas, staying in familiar hotel chains or shopping and seeing the brands you know, it can feel like a relief. Those can be your landmarks in a world where you're not living by places that give your life meaning. They can give you a sense of connection. And imagine what happens if you turn to brands for a sense of connection in places that are trying to sell you those brands to fulfil you. Scripted disorientation. Victor Gruen's original plan, his original vision for shopping centres was actually, it was a response to non-places. He moved to America from Vienna and he wanted to create hubs like his village where people could live and work and play locally and he actually hated cars and roads and so he didn't want the shopping centre to be this big car park surrounding a building. He wanted it to be a place where people would walk and live and be. He called roads avenues of horror. He said the roads he saw in America were flanked by the worst vulgarity ever collected by humans. Billboards, hotels petrol stations, exactly the transient non-places that ours is talking about. And when his vision wasn't realised, when shopping centres became giant car parks and places where people would drive, he moved back to Vienna where a brand new shopping centre was being built and he said he wasn't intending to create a giant shopping machine, but that's what he'd built and he was devastated. He said he invented them all, trying to make America more like Vienna and now he's ended up making Vienna more like America and he hoped all shopping malls would end up neglected, abandoned and forgotten. He wanted the end of the shopping centre, and I think it's fair to say that hasn't happened. Shopping centres are everywhere. And as churches have moved to the margins, we have shopping centres. And the theologian Jamie Smith, he points out shopping centres function as temples in the modern world. They offer visions of the good life, they offer spaces that you go to to experience or transience rather than transcendence, but maybe it's the closest we get. And they have routines and liturgies that you go through as you enter the space, and they have priestly salespeople offering to mediate between you and your gods. And he says, this isn't just an analogy, it's a real thing. They form people. And I want to throw just one other sort of modern physical space into the mix, another modern temple to the gods of fortune, the casino. See, casinos are designed to disorient, and worse. And Natasha Dal Scholl, she wrote this book about modern gambling called Designed to Addict. And she says, in the past, commonplace is designed to build community, communitas, it's the Latin word just for community practices, rhythms and practices, they used to be wide and open and well-lit to facilitate people gathering together. But casinos 
a design with low ceilings and maze-like layouts that direct your gaze and your body to the gambling machines. They are designed to keep you anonymous and disconnected. They're lit in certain ways. They have no clocks so that you will be disoriented. It's scripted disorientation. Or rather, that you will be oriented towards the machines. It's very deliberate. She quotes this Vegas heavyweight, Bill Friedman, who wrote a book called Designing Casinos to Dominate the Competition. It's become something of a textbook in the industry, apparently, where Bill proudly describes the purpose of the maze. He's the guy who came up with it as being to confuse and confound, to get people lost so they'll give themselves to the machines in this labyrinth. He says, if a visitor has a propensity to gamble, the maze layout will evoke it. It will draw that out of us. And I think this sort of manipulation should make us angry. But it's the same strategy that drives IKEA. And so maybe that should make us angry too, except their maze gets you to buy scanty furniture and homewares. There's actually a new strategy in casino design, competing with Friedman's design, where rooms are open and well-lit and beautiful. One pioneered by this guy named Roger Thomas, who sees himself not as an architect, but as an evocatect. He wants to evoke a sense of delight and excitement from his spaces. Because, he says, in his experience, people take on the characteristics of a room. Our habitats do shape our habits and how we see ourselves, in part by evoking our our desires. And I'm not sure, but I suspect this more popular design strategy, it's more popular because it turns out it makes more money, that this is what we'll see in our new lifestyle precinct on the Brisbane River. The super casino built on our river will look like heaven on earth, but will be designed to pull people towards those pokey machines. While the pokey room at your local club will probably look more like Friedman's design because it's cheaper and it will pull people towards those machines. And what they will have in common is that the architecture is designed to take your money. And not just the architecture, the machines themselves, they are designed to disorient and addict and destroy. Natasha Shaw describes how designers adapt their machines to fit the player, to make more money as they create gamblers who will play to extinction. What a phrase. This means playing till they run out of money, but it actually is something more sinister in terms of the psychology of the machines. They're designed to keep people on the machine till they absolutely can't stay any longer, till they have to leave because they've either run out of money or they've run out of time or they're like those video gamers who play so long at their keyboards they die. Casinos installed defibrillators. They're one of the first venues in the States to do that and the, the security team monitor people having heart attacks on the machines, but the machines are calibrated to needs and longings and the pleasure receptors in our brains. They're designed to pull people out of space and time, out of their bodies, and addicts, gambling addicts in this book, describe entering a zone where any sense of existence outside the machine disappears. And this sort of manipulation of the vulnerable should make us angry. Only these same addiction mechanics are being used in our digital devices. And not just by gambling apps, but by games made for kids and for adults with inbuilt micro-reward mechanisms that trigger exactly the same part of the brain, the reward centre, the the dopamine centre. And Shul says it's actually not just gaming, that social media companies, in her observation, work exactly like pokey machines. Anyone who's making algorithms to keep your eyes hooked and your hands active 
People setting up the devices that we carry with us are doing it to create the same scripted disorientation, the Gruen transfer, everywhere we go, every moment of our life, so they can make money from our addictions. Dr. Anne Lemke wrote a book, Dopamine Nation, about how addiction works in our brain chemistry, and she describes our phones as needles operating 24-7 to deliver digital dopamine. Our apps, she says, are like drugs, whether it's games, social media, gambling or porn, even shopping. They're like drugs geared towards addicting us, hooking our brains on dopamine, the pleasure chemical, and leaving us wanting more and more. And she talks about the dopamine economy we live in where people make money out of hooking us on things. Well, she mentions this other guy, David Courtright, who wrote a book called The Age of Addiction, in which he talks about limbic capitalism. The limbic area of your brain is where dopamine works, and he says the system we live in is built and propped up by government and industry and the technology we use to capitalise from chemically hooking our brains, our limbic system through those dopamine hits, by stimulating us in targeted ways geared towards excessive consumption and addiction. This is scripted. It is coded. It is in the algorithms. His book is terrifying and it suggests, like the pokey machine, we're working our way towards extinction by design. And so if this is true, if this is the world we live in, a world of non-places and scripted disorientation and technology that's geared to pull us towards our own extinction, how can we ever feel at home? That's especially challenging if these forces are at work in our homes. It's an Aussie academic based in New York, Adam Alter, who's written this book, Irresistible, about modern technology, and he reckons not only are we wired for addiction in our hearts and our brains, our desires and that dopamine cycle, and disposed towards consuming, and he talks about how some people have addictive personalities, but it's a very small percentage of people, and almost half of adults in the modern West are addicts to something. He says this is wired not just into ourselves but in, or into our technology, but into the way we build our spaces in the way our homes and our lives reinforce that wiring towards addiction. He says addiction is actually an inevitable product of the places, the environments we occupy, and the technology we bring into them. He reckons well-designed environments are actually the key to good habits. This is the jig idea again, and to healthy behaviour, to avoiding addiction, which he says isn't actually about lacking willpower in those crunch moments. He says if you're relying on willpower, you've already lost the battle, If we're already nudged towards the habit or hooked on it, one of the keys is avoiding temptation in the first place through how we build our spaces. And that starts at home. Our habitats shape our habits. We're made to be at home in our bodies and in the places that form us. And it turns out that the more our attention is pulled out of physical places and into digital non-places where we engage as viewers and browsers and users, the more we do that, the more homeless we feel. The evidence is stacking up The digital non-places make us lonely, make us disconnected, make us exiled, and they make us narcissistic, just like the non-place. Online spaces like Amazon and Facebook are like pokey machines designed to pull us in where our experience is shaped by algorithms so that we're scripted to adapt the machine to us while our dopamine-hungry brains crave bigger hits. It's a brave new world that we live in. And maybe what's worst in all of this is when church spaces become non-places rather than sanctuaries from this world. 
when we copy the architecture of the shopping centre or the casino building, mega facilities that people drive to, like shopping centres, where people flows and signage guide us into black box rooms where our attention is oriented towards screens. And anyone from City South might recognise this space. But just notice how these churches all end up looking the same. Even the Presbyterian ones. Like places, non-places built for transience rather than transcendence. See, some of us met in buildings like this in West End, City South. One was a theatre and one was a church space set up to be like a theatre. And can you see how these habitats might subtly set us up to think about church as a product or as entertainment, where our attention has to be grabbed and directed towards our desires, like at a casino, or we'll leave unsatisfied, where familiarity creates the illusion of belonging. We see things that we see in other church spaces, so we feel at home, rather than us cultivating connection through how we meet in the space as a community shaped by the story of the gospel. In spaces, places, that we inhabit with the people around us as we commune with those whose faces we see because the lights aren't off. We see their faces as God works in us through his word. Uh, We can see his word without using a screen because it's not dark. We can see God's spirit in action in his people. See, the Bible doesn't set us up to live in non-places, but to live and interact as creatures in the created world and even to make places in it as images of the God who creates place. Part of being made in the image of God is to make habitats for life that prime us to engage in character-building habits. And so in the beginning, God places Adam in a garden. It's a place. He places him there with fruit trees that are beautiful and good to eat, that he's to eat from. And that eating, that would be a habit that would teach him about God's love, his provision, his hospitality, the pleasure of seeing and eating that fruit was made to create something in our hearts as those pleasure chemicals kicked in. See, God created dopamine hits. They are meant to do something in us. They are meant to orient our hearts towards him and towards each other so that we could love and enjoy his world in ways that made us more human And to eat otherwise in the story is to eat to extinction. Our grasping, addictive, narcissistic hearts are the fruit of embracing sinful desire for self-satisfaction. That's how the story goes. Our self-declaration that things that aren't good for us but give us a dopamine hit are good. And so we start chasing those dopamine hits on our terms, not God's. There's an interesting relationship between idolatry and desire and place-making after Eden. See, Adam is placed in the garden and he's given the space-making jobs of cultivating and keeping, working it and taking care of it. They're the words used for how priests are to maintain the tabernacle and temple as Eden-like spaces where God meets his people. The sanctuary and the altar, these spaces that teach Israel about God, the same way the garden did, but his desire to be present and in relationship, his holiness and his grace and the shape of heaven and earth and the barrier represented by the curtain that is a picture of exile from Eden and of heaven and earth being pulled apart when God's plan is to bring them together and his ongoing provision of life and even the smells and the taste of the meat and the fruit and the bread connected to sacrifices and feasts and festivals, they taught Israel its story in place. They're all habitats jigged up to shape Israel's habitual worship, stamping 
character stamping the image of God on God's priestly people. Only Israel kept bringing idols and their rituals into the environment. Israel was a dopamine nation. Solomon is particularly instructive here. As a placemaker, he builds the temple. This house for God, he says, it's a magnificent temple for God to dwell in forever. There's a picture of kind of Adam like cultivating a space for God. But he also builds high places to other gods, brings in idols with their dopamine-inducing incense and sacrifices and the character-shaping habits of idolatry. And so Israel ends up in exile, ultimately in Babylon with its hanging gardens and its lush places and its massive towers and its idol temples where the whole environment was scripted, where it was designed to orient you to their gods, just like our casinos and our centre-distributing buses and our smartphones. It was scripted to direct attention and habitual worship to Babylon's gods and kings. But what does faithful life in Babylon look like for Israel? Well, part of it looks like placemaking. God tells them to build houses and settle down and plant gardens and eat. Planting their own little Edens, making spaces that are reminders of their story when you've got Babylon's massive gardens right there, reminding them of God's hospitality his desire for presence, that he's the source of blessing, and even that he calls them to be fruitful and multiply and bless those around them while they are in exile. That he hasn't abandoned them, but they need shapes and spaces and habitats that remind them as they live their lives among the pagans. And they get back in the land and they rebuild their spaces, but something is missing. And so Jesus turns up to end the exile, as we saw when we looked at Matthew's Gospel. Exile from Eden and from Israel. He comes as the tabernacle in the flesh, as John calls him, who brings heaven on earth, who comes to save us from homeless life in non-places. But he doesn't do it by restoring the temple, Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, as it was then. He doesn't restore that to its former glory as heavenly space. In fact, his death tears the curtain. The picture of the barrier separating heaven and earth, representing our exile from Eden, from God. And this doesn't mean that space-making is over. That suddenly we're meant to exist without habitats that shape our habits, without a temple. Because Jesus makes a new temple, new tabernacles in the flesh, in Acts, by pouring out his spirit on people, on the church. Now the church in Jerusalem at Pentecost, they didn't have cathedrals. They didn't have public church buildings. The church met in homes. In Jerusalem, they go to the temple as well. But home is the normal habitat for the church as the church spreads into the rest of the world. And presumably, there's some dopamine hits going on for the church as they eat with glad hearts and praise God. There's some learning to desire as they devote themselves. It's a heart word. It's about their loves. And the home is the habitat for these Acts 2 habits where they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and to prayer as they meet together, as they share their story. The home becomes the place that God does his work of disciple-making. It becomes disciple-making architecture, becomes a place connected to the story of the gospel of God, making his home with his people, who are now temples of the Holy Spirit. And the shared table in the home is a setting geared not just towards teaching people about God's hospitality, 
but it's geared to script and position the people around the table so they understand they are members of a household, that they belong to each other, they are now home with God and with each other, no longer exiled but connected to God and to each other as family and home is the ultimate place in that place theory. Look at what Peter says in the bit Jason read for us. The church, people chosen by God and precious to him, as we come to Jesus, the living tabernacle, the the cornerstone, we are built into a spiritual house. There's another translation of that, a temple of the spirit. We are now the holy priesthood. We're the new Adam, the new Levites, whose job was cultivating and keeping the space where heaven and earth come together. The space where we learn about God and are shaped by him by our habits as we declare the praise of God who has recreated us for this purpose through Jesus. See, our sense of homelessness in non-places, well, for all of us, all humans, that's a longing for some sort of home. And we know where that longing is meant to point us. We know that this longing is satisfied as God makes a home with us and ultimately satisfied as we dwell with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth, a new Eden, as he promises. But our home life now, our space-making, it's an opportunity to testify to this story and to who we are in ways that shape us as who we now are. Little meeting places of heaven and earth. Peter describes the church both as the home of God, home with God, the house of his spirit, and as exiles, as foreigners in Babylonian spaces with other temples, other gods, other desire-shaping spaces and desires that wage war, Peter says, against our souls. And that's what happens when you enter those places of scripted disorientation, when you pick up those devices designed to disorient. See, we now, because of this tension, home and away, foreigners but family, we now have a weird relationship to earthly space. See, we know we're not home. It's like every space that's not oriented towards heaven, towards the transcendent, becomes a non-place for us that's pointed towards earth and transient and disconnected from its story. And we feel homeless in a world full of people who also feel homeless, but we know where home is while our neighbours don't. This transient, never-at-homeness and the places built to satisfy that longing with earthly stuff, whether it's casinos or shopping centres, temples, digital spaces, they are expressions of a longing to be home with God. They are part of what comes from being exiled from God. And we are no longer exiled from God. We're home. And we're home too because God is going to renew this earth and make it heavenly. This is our long-term home. And we're heavenly people who can make little embassies of heaven because we are ambassadors, little places that point towards the transcendent. Now, our spaces aren't temples. We are the temples. The church is the people, not the building. But because we're place-making humans made in the image of a place-making God and we're formed by our habits, which are formed by our habitats, our place-making is actually an act of worship, an act of cultivating the world according to our story, whether that's at home in how we shape our houses and our gardens or it's in our workplaces, whether we're employees or employers or in our public spaces like our church buildings, we're invited into an act of embassy building as citizens and ambassadors 
for heaven as we live good lives in Babylon, as we navigate idol temples while making good places. See, abstaining from sinful desires, raging war against our soul, requires resisting the scripts that want to disorient us, that want us to forget our story, the story of the gospel. And they want to do that by cultivating our habits and our hearts. Abstaining from sinful desire will mean cultivating habits of saying no to Babylon, acting with deliberation and with attention where the world wants us to act like automatons, like robots. And so here's some guiding principles for us in all this. That we've, I think we've got to start by grabbing control of our attention, wrestling it back from limbic capitalism and its addictive extinction machines. We have to pay attention to the scripts that are disorienting us, pulling our feet from the path of serving God, of worshipping him, whether that's in physical environments as we enter them or in the digital spaces we occupy and the devices we use. And this might even look like deliberately walking the wrong way at Ikea, ignoring the arrows, knowing what you're there for, finding the shortcut. It might look like doing that at the supermarket. Instead of going through the biscuit aisle, go through the veggie aisle or the dog food aisle if you don't have a dog. Going to the milk that way. Resisting the impulse by sticking to a list, blocking ads on your browser, limiting your screen time. Maybe we could catch the vision of the attentional commons in the spaces we do control, but also in public. Now, there have been some Christians who've campaigned for G-rated outdoor advertising. I wonder if we should go further. If we should fight against the privatisation of public spaces for the good of our neighbours and their ability to pay attention, especially fighting against gambling ads, perhaps, recognising that those are designed and geared towards extinction. We could pay more attention to the insidious and addictive gambling industry and how entwined it is in our culture of limbic capitalism. It's not a small problem. It's a growing problem. But at the same time, we should notice how the same techniques are embedded in our culture and our lives through desire-shaping technology and advocate for regulation of online spaces and technologies in ways that limit their addictive potential. And rather than participating in the platforms that make us lonely and narcissistic and are designed to drive people towards extinction, maybe we could say no. We're not saved by good habits. We are saved and as we come to Jesus, we are turned into people with new habits and a new habitat. We're saved to become disciples who are home with God, saved to devote ourselves, and we are given new hearts by the Spirit, but we're also given new tools to do this and a new story. We're saved to break bread together, to have glad and sincere hearts, to praise God in ways that are recognisably good in a world facing extinction, in our own Babylon. And so we've got to see where we're being nudged and push back accordingly. And one way to do this is also to cultivate our own spaces with jigs that make good habits feel automatic. Whether that means creating a space in your house where your phone is charged that keeps it away from your pocket or your bedroom at night or working out how to keep good things within reach that prompt you towards the transcendent, whether that's art on your wall or photos on your fridge that prompt you to pray for others or physical copies of the Bible close to hand or a picture on your home screen or your Bible app being in the shortcut bar on your phone so you've deliberately got to scroll past it to get to your distractions, we have to consider the architecture of our lives, our houses, our lives. One of my biggest regrets in the design of our house is the way we've oriented our couch towards the TV. There aren't many other ways we can set up our space 
But that fuels my gaming addiction and it makes screens our default as we sit on the couch together. And there are implications here too for how we create and use public spaces like this building. Church buildings shouldn't be non-places. They shouldn't be designed to disorient. They shouldn't be temples to consumption that are just another form of limbic capitalism. And it's tricky because often those temples, the Westfields, like the Hanging Gardens, they're trying to imitate Eden. And so sometimes when we're trying to do good, we're planting gardens, we're creating places where there's dopamine hits directed towards God. It might look the same. This will require wisdom and discernment and avoiding designs that nudge and manipulate and push us towards extinction so that we can cultivate spaces that teach us about God and evoke our sense of his goodness. Encountering God through our bodies together in ways that give us dopamine hits that are humanising rather than addictive and destruction. And whatever the future looks like for this building or a space for our communities, whether together or apart, we should resist creating places without stories and without connection to history and to people living and dead. And we should create places where community happens, places where we don't experience scripted disorientation, but scriptured orientation. That was for you, Malcolm. Yeah, that was for you, Malcolm. Scriptured orientation, where we point our hearts towards God together, praising him through worship, through embodied life together in space and time. And this might include us appreciating the art on the walls downstairs as a picture of faithfulness of a previous generation. And it might also include us collaborating on new art, the generation of beauty, activities that bring life to this space through the humans we see enter our doors. It might involve us resisting a tendency towards transient nomad life or being travellers and instead seeking to put down roots in space and time but with our eyes looking toward our eternal home as we grow like a tree towards there. And this might involve us cultivating hospitality and habits and pictures of life and generosity that flow from here, from this place, like with food pantry, like with lunch together, in ways that celebrate God's presence with us, that we are temples of his spirit, that we are people who have experienced his hospitality and his provision, but look forward to his heavenly hospitality in the new Eden. Let's pray.